welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Science Yale Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Dirk Smeets, CTO of Icometrics, to talk about imaging for neurological conditions. Dirk, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Heather. Pleased to be here. Dirk, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to Icometrics? Yeah, sure. As you mentioned, I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Icometrics. Actually, that means that I'm responsible for all our product developments, so also including all of our AI, but also our strategic partnerships and trying to make sure that the technology that we develop finds a sustainable fit in the healthcare system. So that is called market access. So that is meaning it's being in touch with, for example, insurance companies and so on. I myself have an engineer as a background, and I also did a PhD in medical imaging, and I joined Icometrics almost from the beginning of, of Icometrics and tried to build out all the science and technology parts of, of the organization. So what does Icometrics do, and, and why is this important in treating neurological conditions? Well, if you look at it from a helicopter view, we are probably in a decade that neurological conditions will be really at the center bit similar as what how cancer has been perceived in the in the past as as today one in three people will suffer in their life from a neurological condition and the societal burden for neurological conditions is is a sum of kidney disease heart disease and diabetes together so it's getting a real issue in society and you probably if you look around in your family or in in your friends environment there might be a person with a neurological condition, whether it's a devastating one like Alzheimer's disease or a disease that can still be recovered quite well, like, for example, a mild stroke. There are so many neurological conditions that, that impact our, our lives today. And we as Icometrics, we really try to be helping the way out there as, as many neurological conditions might be treated in the coming years. Um, there is a, a disease called multiple sclerosis where there are already many disease-modifying treatments available. These are medications. And yesterday, there was, for the very first time in history, a treatment approved for Alzheimer's disease. So you see that the field of neurological conditions is moving. There are treatments available. But the downside, unfortunately, is that those medications are not working for everyone. It is still a lot of trial and error today. And what we as Icometrics try to do is to, on the one hand, accelerate that trial and error process by better profiling patients. And on the other hand, to just skip that trial and error process and just build a digital twin of every patient to really think what is the best treatment for that particular patient and provide that best possible treatment at first. That's why we believe it's so important to, to, to match also these therapies with technology and AI is super central there. So what role does AI and machine learning play? How does it help you in this technology? Yeah, it's playing a very central role, I would say. Not necessarily because we see it as a purpose. Our purpose is to help people with neurological conditions, but because of the advancements in compute power, 
what is possible with machine learning and more particularly with deep learning was just not possible to imagine many years ago. You can also see it in with the recent upcome of, of ChatGTP, for example. These were models that were impossible to build in the past as they need large computation power. Also in the field of neurological conditions and specifically in imaging for neurological conditions, we see a little bit of the same. It is quite intensive in terms of memory requirements for computation. But as that is coming more and more available, we can build machine learning models that can do tasks at the level of experts. For example, experts, radiologists. That will change a lot the way we do current practice as that means that the machine learning algorithms are able to provide this expertise to every single hospital, whether you're in an expert academic medical center or in a rural hospital, the AI will, will bring that top expertise there. And that is, I think, something that will, that will change the way how we see care being done in the coming years. So yeah, that's how I see the, the role of machine learning in, in our technology. What kinds of tasks do you use machine learning for specifically with, with neurological conditions? We use machine learning quite a lot. And where I would see its most central role at Tychometrics is in the analysis of imaging data, more particularly magnetic resonance and computer tomography images, MRI or CT in short. They're acquired by specialized machines in the hospitals, and they provide actually quite big data sets, typically three-dimensional data sets. You can see it as a breadth that is sliced, and that's how an MRI image looks like. It can be the MRI image, for example, of a brain, where it is actually containing different slices that contain different parts of the brain, and altogether, you have a, a three-dimensional view of those images. And that is, of course, particularly interesting, as those 3D images they also have technical challenges attached to it. It's different from, for example, a 2D photography in the sense that it is also bigger in terms of memory requirements. It needs fundamental adaptations of the machine learning technology to also work on those types of images. And I think that makes it super challenging from our perspective as, as a company active in the field of AI. So then how do you adapt the, the standard approaches in, in deep learning and, and computer vision for these three-dimensional images and for the challenges that you mentioned? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question. Actually, typically, we, we would start with traditional 2D technology, just treating those 3D images as different, a stack of 2D images. And of course, that doesn't work optimally because then you lose information. And the second step is what we would call 2.5D. It means that we would take one slice of the three-dimensional image together with some neighboring slices and we apply the deep learning algorithms on, on those slices. It's still a little bit the idea that we that, that comes from 2D processing, but it takes already some context of the of the neighborhood into account. And like the, the big last step is of course to work in truly 3D models. And that is luckily possible now with with the big computational power that, that is available. Another way that we can also use to, to make it possible is to divide that large three-dimensional image into blocks of small cubes that we would call patches. And we would apply the deep learning algorithms on those patches. And these are two ways that we use to also apply techniques 
originally coming from 2D images into the world of 3D scans and make sure that it, that it really can do meaningful things on those, those images. Applying deep learning, what specific tasks are you using it for? Are you trying to predict the presence or absence of a particular condition? Or is it more fine-grained, like measuring different structures in the brain and quantifying their, their size? Yeah, indeed. There are actually different levels of information that can be extracted from, from such images. And typically, it starts from just extracting simple measurements that also a radiologist or neurologist would theoretically be able to do, but then in an automated manner. For example, in, in people with multiple multiple sclerosis, there are little spots of inflammation. They're called plaques inside the brain of those patients. And they, they appear as white spots on the MRI scan. And what we will do is we will try to identify them and measure their volumes. So it's a task that theoretically could also be done by a radiologist. It would take a lot of time, but machine learning algorithms would, would automate that task. The big advantage of this approach is that this feels very familiar to the radiologist and neurologist and makes it much easier to, to adopt in their clinical workflow because it's something that they might be willing to do anyway, but now it's done in a more robust, more accurate and faster way than they would ever be able to do so. The second level is that we try to, to get more information out of it. Instead of just measuring it, we can try to classify a lesion, whether it's a multiple sclerosis lesion or another type of lesion. And that intelligence can also be trained for by a machine learning algorithm. And that is something that, that we can definitely also implement with current technology. It's already one level more difficult to implement in a clinical practice because then the radiologist or neurologist need to have more trust in the algorithm. And then the last level of, of information that, that the ML algorithms can provide are a true diagnosis. The scan can be given and the full diagnosis can be done. And that is something that is currently still at the very early stages in development. In, in the medical field, there is not much of those algorithms really deployed in a clinical practice. On the one hand, that has to do with the challenges to build such, such tools in a reliable manner. It's not easy. Every, every patient looks different on the, on the one hand, but also because it requires a fundamental trust by neurologists, radiologists, other clinicians in the technology. And that is not so easy. It will take time and it will take time also to build in the evidence for those machine learning algorithms to really prove that they can make the right diagnosis based on, on an image, for example. So the easiest place to start is, like you said, with the first level set of tasks where you're making a radiologist more efficient and removing some of the, the mundane measurements they might otherwise do, but so they can understand the outputs, they can verify that they're correct. These higher level tasks, as you said, it's the future, but it's still in progress. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And if you look also in the field, for example, of radiology, most of the AI applications that are currently being used are definitely in that first category. It's only in the last years that, for example, in the United States, the FDA is already accepting the first computer-aided diagnostic and detection tools, which is like a one level higher. I would say there are about 10% of all the algorithms that have been cleared by the FDA. So you see that that second stage is, is starting to be reality. But the third level is, is something that is, that is still very, very early. 
So in working with applications across these three different levels, and in deciding what specific tasks to apply machine learning to, how do you ensure that the decisions you make and the the areas that you target are the right ones to ensure that the technology your team develops will fit in with the clinical workflow and provide the right kind of assistance to doctors and patients? Yeah, clinical workflow is key in, in, in what, you, what you're asking here. I think it is easy to, relatively easy to develop AI algorithms. You take a data set, you probably can even take open source tools to design an ML algorithm and to develop it. But to make sure that it is seamlessly integrated into the workflow of a clinician, that will make a difference of the tool being used or not. And for example, from that perspective, we have chosen to to be a background service. We actually didn't want our users, being the neurologist and the radiologist, to interact with the software. It is built that everything is done automatically in the background after the acquisition of an MRI or CT scan and before the radiologist starts the reading. And as such, the radiologist has just more information at his availability. He is is empowered to make more difficult decisions as he has more knowledge. And that is something that we have chosen to do. And I think that that seems to be the right approach. So taking another step back and thinking back towards the beginning of your product development or the start of a new feature that you're developing, how does your team plan and develop for a new machine learning product or feature? Yeah, it's very difficult to weigh different feature requests. They can come from customers or other stakeholders. They can come from, for example, our medical advisory board or a strategic advisory board, or they can come from our icometrics vision. As, as a company, we have a certain purpose, a purpose to help people with neurological conditions to find the right treatment. And that, that also translates into features. And all of these features and perspectives of the product, they come together and they will be implemented in, in a way that we try to prioritize the ones that we feel are most important first. And we do that in an agile approach. So we try to implement them relatively quickly and test them with our current customers so that they can give feedback on the feature. And if they like it, we, we keep it in. And in, in such a way, we, we build the tools to meet our vision, to meet our strategy, but also to meet our customer needs. And this is also something that we struggle with sometimes as, as we're in a very regulated environment. Our tools, they're regulated by the medical device regulations from the FDA or the European medical device regulations. So it's not just every change that we can simply put in the market and ask customers to test. So for that, we also try to to build mechanisms around it to make still sure that that customers have early access to new features and and can evaluate it and really say whether that that fits their needs because that is ultimately what counts of course. So you mentioned the regulatory process. How does this affect the way you develop machine learning models? Are are you thinking about it from the very beginning as you're deciding whether to develop a new feature or does the planning come in a bit later in the process? Yeah, in our business, this is really an impactful aspect. Regulations, if you speak about regulations, I would say the most important regulations are related to medical device regulations and the privacy regulations. And that then also entails, for example, ethical considerations, balancing of data, and so on. And these are aspects that that we all need to consider typically before we start the implementation. 
And that's sometimes fundamentally is, is different than the approach to quickly test features in the market and to test whether it's really helping a clinician in, in, the, daily, in the daily practice. Now, for example, if we zoom in into the medical device regulations, these actually are there to make sure that the technology is safe and effective. And that is, of course, super important. And to make sure that the technology is safe and effective, there is a lot of processes in place to control the process of building the tools. And those also include the necessary validations to make sure that the tool is really doing what it's meant to do before it gets into, into production. And that process is also on a regular basis audited, a team of auditors coming into the offices of Icometrics and diving really into our processes, asking a lot of questions to different people involved to make sure that the tools are developed also according to those regulations. Your team has published a number of research articles. What benefits have you seen from publishing your work? Yeah, as, as Icometrics, we we find science important. It's actually almost in our DNA. And the reason why is that we believe that the technology we build should be scientifically sound. It should, it should do something that, that matters from the scientific point of view. There is, there is a medical advantage of the, of the tools we develop. And to show that also to, to our stakeholders, of course, at first our customers, but definitely also patients or other stakeholders, we have chosen to, to be quite active in, in publishing the work in scientific journals, preferably, but also at conferences or white papers to make sure that it's clear what we're doing. And this is also particularly important as, as machine learning of artificial intelligence in general is often perceived as a, as a black box. It's especially for people that are not so familiar with it, they feel that yeah, it's 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 foggy. It's it's unclear what it's actually doing. And with those publications, we also try to create transparency, to create openness to all of our stakeholders to really show that those AI tools are designed in the right way and that they perform in the right way. And that's something that publications are are a great tool for, actually. So it sounds like it it really builds trust among patients, among clinicians, among investors among everybody in your circle. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what we really think it should do, indeed. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? I can think of a lot of things, but what I would pick out uh, particularly is is on the generalizability of AI models. As I mentioned earlier, building an AI model based on a data set that, that you can find either on the web or through a collaboration that is actually not that difficult. There are multiple toolboxes available. What makes it really challenging is to make the AI sufficient generalizable to also allow it to be used in situations that the model has not seen in its training data. And that is what happens in the real world. In our case, for example, we can collect MRI CT images from one hospital, but that is not necessarily representative for the MRI and CT data from other hospitals. So my recommendation from the technology perspective would be to think about the generalizability early onwards. And there are different ways to to cope with it. And I think that is something that always should be kept in mind. The second aspect that I would like to add more from the business perspective is that, in my view, artificial intelligence is rather a meme 
and not the end goal. The end goal is is the business question. In our case, it is the clinical value that we want to provide to the clinicians. That is the value that that make them willing to pay for the AI. And AI is just a means to achieve it and not the purpose. And I think that is that is something that we always try to keep in mind. Of course, cool AI could be a differentiator, but still, in my opinion, it is always a mean to a higher purpose. And finally, where do you see the impact of Icometrics in three to five years? Well, allow me to be a little bit optimistic here and, and maybe a bit am- ambitious, but as I mentioned in the very beginning, I think we're in the decade that a lot will change in the field of neurological conditions. And I think Icometrics will play a, such an important role in, in that. I think the way we treat patients with neurological conditions will fundamentally change with more treatments available. I think that Icometrics will be an integral part of the care path that people with neurological conditions, they are monitored with digital tools like the Icometric digital tools, but I think also other digital tools. And this information will be used to drive the patients to the right therapy. With that, I think we can save so many lives. We can save so much quality of life for people with a neurological condition. And that is something that is today untapped. And I'm sure that we will be able to untap in maybe not the next three to five years, but definitely within the the next 10 years. This has been great. Dirk, your team at Icometrics is doing some really interesting work for neurological conditions. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? Well, we try to be quite active on social media, definitely LinkedIn. And of course, our website is also a way to find out more. Of course, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. We'll be very happy to get in touch with all other companies being active in the field of, of artificial intelligence and whatever, whatever domain. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people in planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.